You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Almighty God, we give you thanks uh, for each and every person here. We thank you that you've gathered us to uh, consider your word this morning on baptism. We thank you, Lord, for this uh, faith community of the Advent. We thank you for the newly baptized this morning. And we ask, Lord, that you would continue to nurture them uh, in your truth and your love. Be with us now uh, during this class. Lord, we don't pretend that we have all the answers, but we know that in you, uh, the giver and author of life, uh, that you do. And so we turn to you now. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, I'm so delighted to be with you. A handful of you I've met kind of here and there. Um, I'm still the new kid on on the block. Um, my name is Jay Gardner. I'm one of the, the clergy here at Church of the Advent, uh, serving as canon for pastoral care, sometimes called canon pastor. Um, and what that essentially means is, uh, outside of normal duties of preaching and teaching and baptizing, and which we're going to talk about today, uh, pastoral care is my wing. So. Baptisms would fall under that, weddings, funerals, uh, hospital visits, uh, communion at home. Uh, it's, it's a broad category. Really, every phase of life uh, requires pastoral care, doesn't it? So uh, uh, I'm, I'm here learning a lot from uh, Craig, who held the position for 10 years, but so delighted to be with you all. Uh, I was in your shoes about 10 years ago. I came through this class in 2012, uh, the spring of 2012. Slightly different format then, but uh, still the same idea. Um, I don't like talking about myself too much, but I know I'm supposed to give a, a little bit of in, intro, uh, introduction. So as I mentioned, I was born in Alabaster, did not grow up in the church. Uh, my mom was Catholic and, and faithful and pious, but uh, my dad really just did not want us going to the Catholic church uh, for, for several different reasons. Nothing against uh, Catholics from my end. In fact, my mom's side is all Catholic, um, but my dad was just vehemently opposed. And so we went nowhere, unfortunately. We, we didn't go to church at all. And so as a teenager, I uh, started attending church here and there with some friends from high school or from middle school and uh, heard the gospel at a Baptist church, um, It's a great place to hear the gospel. Uh, and like scales falling from my eyes, I mean, one day I was not a Christian, the next day I was. I mean, truly heard the gospel and was converted. Uh, my wife has a, a different story. She was raised in the church. She does not remember a day that she wasn't a Christian. And so that'll, that'll play into our discussion just a little bit, not so much our testimonies, but uh, what it means to be baptized. Uh, but as I continued to go to school and was firmly a Christian, not perfect by any means, uh, started hearing Scripture more, preached and reading it, and took a real interest in it uh, and felt God was calling me to ministry, not sure exactly in what capacity. Um, and so I wasn't so sure that I should proclaim that outwardly, so I went to UAH to be an engineer and God quickly snatched me out of that program. <laughs> I was sitting in my first engineering class, and I looked around the room, and I thought, I don't belong here. Um, I love math, I love science, but this is just not the way that I think. And so I switched to an undecided, uh, undeclared major, and over time, through various um, little nudgings, the Holy Spirit was saying, now that feeling you had in high school, it's, it's still valid. I'm calling you to ministry. And so I started interning at my wife's uh, church, uh, her, her family's church, as a youth minister, and we moved to Birmingham. I started Beeson Divinity School here at Sanford, and that's when we found the Advent. Uh, we, we came to the Advent and discerned a call to ministry um, here. And so that was 10 years ago. That was 10 years ago. I was sitting where you are. Well, I was sitting in the living room is where we used to have that class. Have y'all been to the living room yet? It's one of our rooms outside of Clingman Commons. Beautiful room. I think this is better for this format, by the way. This works, this works better. 
But anyways, that's where we had it. And so I know exactly uh, not your story, not where you come from, not what your experience is, but as it comes to being a new uh, inquirer at the Advent, it can be a little a little daunting. It's a big church. Um, I, I didn't grow up in a big church by any means, and so it was um, it's good to have familiar faces around the table. All right, that's enough about me, I think. Unless you have just any burning questions, I think we can move on. <laughs> I don't want to talk about me anymore. If you've got uh, a Bible and you do in front of you, uh, let's turn to page 712. Uh, if you're using uh, the Bible before you, if you brought your own Bible, we're in Matthew 28. So page 712, and I will read, um, I'm going to read verses 16 through 20, uh, which is titled here, The Great Commission. You may have heard that before. And I'm not assuming any knowledge level in here. I know some of you come from different churches, different church backgrounds. Uh, Some of you may not, like me, may not have been in church uh, growing up. This may be all foreign, new language to you. But I'm going to read this, and we're going to talk a little bit about it. So this is... Page 712, Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Well, this is, of course, after Jesus uh, has been crucified and resurrected. And you would think, uh, or at least I would think, you know, uh, as a disciple, I'd be so delighted that my Lord has come back. Uh, But he gives them a task. It's not time to sit and twiddle thumbs. Uh, He gives a task. Um, The good news has been proclaimed uh, in his own body. Uh, and now uh, by his return. And so he's saying, look, it's your job, uh, disciples, to go and share this word, uh, to make sure that the world knows. And keep in mind, this was Israel's task from the beginning. As you read the Old Testament, what was God's promise to Abraham? That he would make Abraham a great nation, that he would give him uh, a son or an heir, and that through this son uh, would spring forth, of course, the people of Israel. But the call was not for them to simply hoard God's promises. Uh, The call was them to be a blessing to all the nations. And so that was Israel's call. We as the church are grafted into that uh, through through Christ. And so now the Great Commission comes to the church, to to the apostles and disciples first, and you and I uh, carry this commission as well. So Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That's that that same language. Go and bless all the nations. Go and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And then a promise, of course, I will be with you until the end of the age. So that word baptism there, before we even get to baptism, he says make disciples. What is a disciple? A disciple is someone who learns, someone who's uh, uh, being brought up in the teaching, the discipline of whoever the teacher is. So we're making disciples. And the way in which we do that, of course, uh, we baptize them as the way that they're introduced into the faith community. The word baptize, probably most literally, uh, it does probably mean to immerse. Uh, to immerse. In other words, to, to be plunged into water. We'll talk more about the means of baptism in a moment, or the mode of baptism. Now, where in the New Testament might have we seen baptism before? Jesus himself was baptized. In fact, all four Gospels attest to this, that Jesus himself was baptized. Have you ever thought about that? Have you reflected on the idea that Jesus was baptized? It's pretty remarkable. 
In fact, we sing a hymn here and it always moves me to tears. Uh, it says, for us, He was baptized. For us, Christ was baptized. So in Jesus' day, uh, it was a common Jewish practice to ritually be cleansed. So what they had these uh, baths, they're called mikvah baths. And so it was common for before going to worship, um, you, would, you would ritually purify yourself with water. Have any of you been to the Holy Land before? Mary has. Did you see any mikvah baths when you were there? And so, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, it's something that you would you would walk down into the water and then walk out, and so you would be plunged into the water. And again, they would do this uh, ritually before worship at times. And it's not like our baptism. You know, this morning when we baptized, we said one Lord, one faith, one baptism. A mikvah was uh, a common uh, baptism, or excuse me, washing, if you will. They did it over and over again. Again, it was more of an experiential. It's not the literal washing of dirt that matters. Uh, God's, I want to be careful how I say that, by the way. Um, anybody with a Jewish background in here? I don't want to offend. I just want to make that clear. Yeah. Ben DeHart, who's one of our priests here, who some of you may have met, he's actually, he grew up uh, half Jewish. His mother's side is Jewish. So I always want to be sensitive to that. Um, I don't want to talk about people as if, you, you get what I'm saying. Uh, but the, the washing of dirt, it's not so much that, but experientially as a worshiper, it's a reminder that God cleanses us of our sins. And so when John the Baptist arrives in the Gospels and he's baptizing people, it's really in this vein. It's a, it's a message of repentance. What does repentance mean? To turn, uh, to think again, actually quite literally. It means to change our mind. And so with repentance, with the changing of our mind, of course, um, is hopefully, God willing, a change of behavior, a change of mindset. Um, so baptism with John uh, is one of repentance. Uh, the, the message is we are sinners. We, are, we, we have uh, broken uh, wills, if you will. We have uh, misaligned wants and desires. Uh, and so it manifests itself in sin. And so John the Baptist proclaims this. We tend to think of the season of Advent, which is coming up, not the church of the Advent, but the season of Advent as a preparation for Christmas. But if you read the, the scriptures each Sunday, John the Baptist gets a really heavy mention. And so it's a preparing a way not just for Jesus' birth, but it's a continual reminder, uh, even for Christ's second coming, that we, we're sinners and we're called to repent and to be cleansed uh, by Him. So when people send Christmas cards during Advent, I always kind of laugh. You know, it's always a sweet you know, Christmas tree or an angel. But I always am tempted every year to send a John the Baptist card. <laughs> and, it said, and you know, to open it up and it would say, uh, You brood of vipers, who warned you of the wrath to come? <laughs> Love, Jay. Uh, but, but I've not done it yet. Um, but when you, when you encounter the, the message of Advent, that is the season of Advent, the coming of Christ, um, I know in December we start going to the shopping malls, or maybe maybe November, maybe October for some of you, and you hear all the you know secular Christmas music, you see the trees and the lights and all that, and that's all fine and good. But uh, the the season of Advent really is is it's a reminder, it's almost penitential uh, that we are in fact broken as humanity. Uh, it's not to point fingers at any one person, but all of us uh, share in in uh, humanity's uh, sinful nature, and so. Uh, this baptism of repentance that, that John is proclaiming, Jesus partakes in. If you go back to the, all four Gospels make mention of it, Jesus himself was baptized. Now, why in the world would Jesus, who we proclaim to be sinless, to have lived a perfect life, why in the world would he be baptized uh, in this manner? Well, again, it's for us. He's taking on all of human, uh, the human situation. While he himself is not a sinner, he's taking it on. 
as the book of Isaiah says, uh, the sin of man was placed upon him. And so even in the act of baptism, uh, he's proclaiming that. And so when we are baptized, um, we are grafted into Christ's story. I don't want to flip around too much, but this is an important scripture for you all to look at. It comes from Romans. uh, And I will give you the page number here in just a moment. Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. That's on page 807. So 807. I know the print's kind of small. My lighting's fine, but if you're in a dark place, it may be hard to see. Romans uh, chapter 6. And I'll just start here in the first verse once you get there. Um, Romans is a powerful book. And if you've been a Christian for a while or raised in the church, you probably already know that. But uh, Paul deals with all that sin question in the first few chapters. And around chapter 5, chapter 6, he's still dealing with that subject, but it starts to turn. The message turns away from... um, one of doom and gloom, which is, of course, without a Savior, uh, we are uh, in a place of doom and gloom. But he starts introducing the Savior figure, uh, Christ to us. In chapter 6, he talks about baptism. So this is chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now you see a similar theme. What I'm trying to show you is the baptism of John is not coterminous. It's not identical with Christian baptism. It's a precursor. It's a preparing of. But what Paul is proclaiming is uh, baptism is not just us repenting from sin, saying, you know, Lord, I'm sinful I've made up my mind, I'm not going to sin anymore. He says, no, that's not, that's not it. It's a identifying with Christ. When we're baptized, we are grafted into Christ's story. And that's why he says with uh, no, uh, uh, no stutter in his mouth, he says, we have been buried therefore with him by baptism into death. He doesn't say we might be or if we're really good, we will be. He says we have been, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so Paul's proclaiming a new reality in Christian baptism. He's saying, uh, you, when you're baptized, you, um, you are brought into Christ's story. It's no longer my narrative, but it's Christ's narrative uh, in me. And so that may be a a slightly different understanding. Uh, Again, I was baptized in a Baptist church, and it's a Christian baptism, but sometimes the emphasis, and this is not hurling insults at anybody who might be Baptist. Uh, Again, I'm I'm very thankful for my Baptist heritage. Um, Sometimes it's proclaimed that I've made a decision for Christ. It's me, it's my work. And where Paul is saying, no, it's completely Christ's work. It's Christ's work in you. And so if you've been moved to a decision, it's because the Holy Spirit's moved you. But the baptism is the linking to uh, Christ's death and resurrection. And so no longer is it simply repentance, it's, it is repentance, but now it's even broader. It's You are brought into the economy of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which is exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 28, where we were, just were. We're to baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, if you read the book of Acts, you see the church, the fledgling church, um, listening to Christ's call, but then having to work it out practically in real time. And so what are they doing? Uh, they go and do exactly what he said. They're teaching the faith. They're proclaiming uh, Christ's work. If you read the sermons of uh, Peter and Paul, 
um, and many others in Acts, uh, you see what's, what's the message there. It's not that uh, people try hard and have now repented and now God blesses them. No, it's that Christ died for our sins and was raised so that we would have new life. That's the message. And they hold that up, of course, uh, reading uh, the Bible. And when I say the Bible, in the book of Acts, they didn't have the New Testament yet. All they had was the Old Testament. And so when they talk about the Scriptures in the book of Acts, they're undoubtedly talking about the Old Testament. And so uh, imagine, the, imagine the, the, the framework here. It's a missionary uh, framework. And these uh, Jewish men and women who have seen Jesus uh, uh, crucified and raised from the dead, and now uh, he's asked them, he's ordered them, in fact, he's commissioned them to go share this reality with the world. Now, they go to the Jewish world primarily at first. They're in Jerusalem. But remember, the call was to bless all the nations, to go to Jerusalem and Samaria and to the ends of the world. And so over time, they start going out into what's called uh, the Gentile areas, you know, the Mediterranean uh, and other places, uh, even to the east. And so there's people who don't have a, a common knowledge of the Old Testament. So they're now evangelizing both with the Old Testament and with the, the promise of Christ uh, himself. And so in due time, these apostles who went out, they, of course, wrote the New Testament. And so you and I have the full witness of Old and New Testament. Uh, but they were going out with just the Old Testament. So along with the teaching, the disciple-making, um, the instructive portions of it, which includes both doctrine and life, uh, it was a call to baptize. Now, we in our church, we refer to baptism as a sacrament. You will not find the word sacrament in the Bible. It's not a, it's not a biblical word, but that's not to say it's not... Uh, uh, in line with the Bible. Sort of like the word Trinity. Have you heard the word Trinity before, undoubtedly? That is also not in the Bible. We see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We see the framework, the economy of God in the Trinity. Uh, but the church in its wisdom started using the word Trinity as sort of shorthand. And there's a whole host of doctrines that go about that. Can we talk about the creeds at all much in this class? Maybe kind of in passing here and there perhaps, but not uh, substantively. We'll have more time to talk about that in due time. Um, but again, the creeds, you won't find the creeds in Scripture. So the question for you all, if you're not from either a Catholic or Orthodox or Episcopalian or Lutheran or perhaps Methodist background, why add all this stuff? Why have creeds? Why have words like Trinity? Why have words like sacrament? Well, it's so that we, uh, we can properly read the Scripture. It's been delivered uh, to us. Um, if you read the early church fathers, uh, they're, they're called the early church fathers. Sorry, ladies, they were mostly men. Um, they, they write about these things, and there's a guy named Irenaeus. This Irenaeus is how it's spelled. He says anybody can read the Bible. Anybody can pick up Scripture. And if you imagine uh, reading Scripture as a mosaic, any artists in here? Art enthusiasts? Yeah. Uh, anybody can read Scripture, he says, but to make... Um, the picture of Christ in a mosaic come out, that's where the Holy Spirit has to be at work. He says the people who don't read the Bible properly, they're putting the pieces together, and instead of it pointing to Jesus, it's pointing to a dog or a cat or a reptile. In other words, there's little pit, bits and pieces everywhere, and if we assemble them, this is how all great heresies come to be, they have bits of truth. They have elements of the truth, but they're missing the full picture. And so words like sacrament and trinity and creeds, they help us they help us put the picture together a little more neatly. That's, that's all I'm saying. Uh, can we be Christians without saying those things? Absolutely. But I think the church in its 2,000-year history and wisdom uh, and Holy Spirit-guidedness, it's used words like that. And so what is a sacrament? Y'all talked about Holy Communion last week, the Lord's Supper. Did y'all talk about what a sacrament was at all? 
So the, what, often you'll hear Episcopalians and they know it by heart. Uh, many Episcopalians uh, know a lot about the prayer book and not always a lot about the Bible. Um, <laughs> but the one phrase that's just hammered in is a sacrament is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. And so it's something uh, tangible or touchable. In the case of uh, baptism, yeah, you can feel the water. Um, the water in and of itself is not the goal. It's pointing to a spiritual reality. Uh, which is that we've been regenerated in Christ. We've been crucified and raised with Him into new life. So what is the outward sign in Holy Communion? What's the thing you can touch or taste or smell? The bread and wine. Yeah, the bread, bread and wine. The Eucharist. Yeah, you, you all know this, but it goes by many names. The Lord's Supper is what Paul calls it. Holy Communion is what a lot of Episcopalians call it. Um, the Eucharist, which just means thanksgiving. Uh, if you grew up Catholic, you may have heard the word Mass. But yeah, the outward invisible thing is the bread itself, the wine itself. And what is it pointing to? What's the... Yeah, yeah, Jesus Himself. Yeah, His broken body, His shed blood for us, and yes, uh, uh, His new, uh, our new life in Him as He's resurrected. So both baptism and Holy Communion, uh, in their own way, are communicating the same gospel. Uh, there's a Lutheran theologian by the name of Robert Jensen. Um, he died a few years ago, but he referred to sacraments as visible words. So when uh, Craig preached a sermon this morning, uh, those words that came out of his mouth create vibrations in the air, right? And your eardrums receive them, right? Those are tangible things. It's things in our universe. In other words, it's not like a, a spiritual reality that's just communicated to you via ESP. Is that the right word, ESP? Yeah. God uses the created realm to communicate His truth. And so through a preacher, it's, it's vibrating words and you understand them. Through uh, baptism and Holy Communion, it's, it's tangible, touchable things that are visible words that point to a deeper reality. So the, the bread and wine and the water itself, they're not to be worshipped. They're not to be uh, held up as any more special than uh, any other water or bread and wine. But in that act of preaching, proclaiming these visible words, uh, they become they, they lift us into uh, a deeper uh, part of God's reality. And so I view the sacraments, this is me talking, but I, I think it's commensurate both with our tradition and the Scriptures. The sacraments uh, are another way that God proclaims to us. I want to be mindful of the time here. Oh my gosh, we've only got ten more minutes. Um, I've got so much to say on this topic. Um, I want you to consider for a moment. I, I view preaching as, as the, the primary call of the church to proclaim. And I'm not talking about just from the pulpit. I think uh, what I'm doing right now, to a degree, what you all do uh, in your lives at coffee shops or talking to your family or friends, uh, you're preaching. Your lives preach to a degree, but your words do too. I think it's the highest calling of the church. But I, I do recognize that sometimes preaching falls on deaf ears. Sometimes preaching doesn't quite reach uh, uh, the person needing to be reached. We pray it does. But I want you to imagine for just a moment, imagine a world in which, um, and some of you may have uh, family or loved ones in this, in this kind of uh, place, but imagine, say, the mentally, the mentally challenged, the handicapped, uh, as it used to be called. Maybe, maybe not, they have access to the preached word. Maybe, maybe their mental disability is so far that they can't understand the preached word. I do believe baptism is a way that we proclaim to them, and to us, for that matter. And so the question comes up, not just the mentally challenged, but uh, little children. Why do we baptize babies? They can't understand this stuff. That's what I often hear. Well, no, I'm not sure that I fully understand it either. Even me, a full-grown man who's been to seminary and been trained in this stuff, I don't think I fully grasp God's promises at all times. 
And yet, I think uh, just as much as a baby can be baptized or an adult or a mentally challenged person, no matter what the age, God communicates His grace. He communicates it. It's effective. And so, does that mean uh, without a shadow of a doubt that when we baptize a baby, they understand it? Absolutely not. It may take a lifetime to understand. That's why when we baptize a baby, we ask the parents and the godparents to make promises. To say, we're going to make sure this child in due time hears this over and over again. And the whole congregation says the same thing. We're going to make sure, Lord, with your help, that this, this person who's being baptized will continually hear this message. And so I'll return to where I started with my wife, Paige, who cannot remember a day that she wasn't a Christian. She can't remember it. Because she was, uh, even before she was born, the nine months before she was born, she was going to church every single Sunday, <laughs> whether she liked it or not. And this is true of my children. Uh, they've, yeah, from the moment of conception, uh, every Sunday, they, they were going to church. A story on that page can tell you, but our kids love the organ, the pipe organ. And both of them uh, in, in the womb, this one was born in New York City, the other was born in Coleman. When the organ played, there was, there was some action. Uh, the, they, they loved the organ. Either that or they hated it. You know, I can't tell yet, but it agitated them. My point in all of that is saying um, what a gift it is to not, for, for those who were baptized as babies, and I won't ask you to ask, raise your hands if you want to tell me another time you can, whether you were baptized as a baby or not. What a gift to say, God made a promise to me. Irrespective of my response, God made a promise to me. And this is the gospel, by the way. We're never going to get it 100% right. Were any of you at the baptism this morning at 9 o'clock? Did you see it? Do you see the first child I baptized? Do you see what he did? He yanked my microphone and started to wiggle and protest a little bit. He, he calmed down. But what, what a theologically rich illustration for how we are with God. We kick and we scream and we claw and we fight and we say, No, Lord, no. I'm going to take your microphone to prevent you. But that water still comes. God's promise is still sure. As much as we try to reject and get rid of it and deny it, God's promise comes. And so as we proclaim that word, not just to babies, uh, but to everyone, over time the Holy Spirit, hopefully, prayerfully, by God's power, uh, breaks down our broken will. And eventually, instead of saying, no, Lord, we say, yes, Lord. That's the hope. But it doesn't change the promise. The promise is God has made uh, a promise. And God is not a liar. God does not... uh, wish the death of any sinner. He does not wish to be separated from anyone. When he says, uh, you've been claimed, you've been claimed. Now, you can reject that. You can run from it. You can hide. Uh, but, but God knows exactly where you are. And so the promise of baptism is, no matter how far you run or how much you try to hide, uh, God still has a claim on you. And when Paul proclaims this reality that you have been buried and you have been raised again to new life, that's not something that you and I can break. You can try it. I've, some of you probably have tried it before, tried to run. And I have a feeling like me being snatched out of an engineering program, God has snatched you up uh, too. And perhaps your story uh, colliding here at the Advent is part of that snatching or His gentle uh, pushing you. I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad you're here to journey with us. So I've said a lot. I want to give you just a moment uh, to perhaps ask a question on baptism. And I know I've made it as clear as mud, uh, so let's go ahead and clarify it a little bit. Any questions on baptism? Jay, would you speak, I've heard misconceptions about um, maybe people who die or babies that die without being christened or baptized. Yeah. That is not a sentence to hell. I mean, it is... Yeah, so here's the fear is if baptism is so important, and we do believe it's important, we do believe God's proclaiming through visible words uh, His love for whoever's receiving that. 
Um, what I would say to that is bapti- baptism is sufficient, um, but not necessary. If any of you study philosophy, that's a distinction. It's sufficient uh, to receive the gospel, but it's not the only way in which we receive the gospel. And so, um, and if you were raised in a Baptist uh, context, uh, there is a valid point. Read the book of Acts. It is sort of a proclamation of our own faith. In Christ, uh, there is a personal testimony element to it. Uh, and that's a gift of, of being baptized, perhaps, as an older uh, older person. But to say that someone died without being baptized, um, it is sufficient but not necessary for salvation. I think I'm saying that correctly. And so, um, yeah, and, and God, uh, in, his, in His timing, you and I work, um, you know, we're born and we die. There's a, there's a firm timeline. I'm not sure God plays by the same rules you and I do. And so He knows, um, he knows His intent for, for every person, uh, every creature that He makes. That's what, that's what I'd say about that. Can you speak to how kind of baptism and then confirmation work here at the Advent? That's a great question, yeah. So if, in fact, you were baptized uh, as a baby or as a young child and couldn't quite grasp or understand or articulate or communicate what's going on, confirmation um, for those people is a way for them to do that publicly. And then for those of us who are baptized, I was baptized at 14, so I, for all intents and purposes, um, an adult. I won't say I was an adult, but understanding uh, as an adult would. Uh, confirmation for me was an opportunity before uh, this congregation and in the Episcopal Church more broadly to say, I believe in these words uh, of the Bible and in the creeds and in Christ himself. So confirmation is sort of a, it's not a completion of baptism. Baptism is a complete act in itself. But confirmation is an opportunity uh, for those uh, who are joining the church to articulate publicly what they believe. Sometimes it's called, some people call it a sacrament. Uh, I think that's a, a bit of a stretch. Uh, what is a sacrament? We say it's an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. So by that definition, we might could say that it's a sacrament. Uh, and the way we split up the sacraments in theology is there are two what's called dominical sacraments. In other words, uh, ordered by Christ himself, which would be baptism. He orders us, he commissions us to baptize. And he says, do this in remembrance of me with regards to the supper. Those are two things that he outwardly said. And then the other five sometimes so-called sacraments are called uh, ecclesiastical, uh, which means from the church. And so I don't really like calling them sacraments. I prefer just calling them, uh, if you want to call it, I would say lowercase s sacraments. But conf- So confirmation is not a completion of baptism, but it's an opportunity to, for us to publicly proclaim that we have been baptized and we do believe uh, that which we're called to believe. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 Anything else? I want to be mindful. I've got about two more minutes, which is plenty of time for one more question, probably. I have one. I feel silly to ask. That's all right. Go ahead. In children's church, I feel like we're always teaching on uh, Jesus being baptized. And in the literature we're given down there, it always talks about how John the Baptist ate bugs and he was you know, really dirty and covered in honey. So why John the Baptist? And what does that say about like our Lord and Savior that... That's who baptized him. Like, does it speak to anything? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if directly it does, but I mean, I can just pontificate for a moment. I mean, John the Baptist, most scholars believe uh, he was part of a sect of of Judaism called the Essenes. So there's a a movement. um, I'm trying to liken them to a group today. I want to be careful again. I want to offend. But uh, they took their Bibles very seriously. And um, it was a, a retreat from the world in many ways. So instead of staying and engaging, uh, they retreated. But in doing that, I think they were they were clarifying what God was saying. 
And so Jesus uh, himself may have been attached to the Essenes. We don't, we don't know for sure. It's never said in Scripture. But I do think it says something about it doesn't matter who baptizes you. It's the act itself pointing to God, not the, the stature or the status of the person doing it. And so uh, Paul even talks about this in one of his letters. He says, I don't remember who I baptized. You know, it's not important that I did it. It's important that it happened. And so the personality of or uh, uh, the resume, if you will, of the person baptizing is really not the point. But I think to, to your point, uh, perhaps, Jesus humbled himself to even be baptized by this, this crazy guy, this wild, crazy guy. <laughs> and so uh, it's the story of Christ over and over again to humble himself. And that's exactly what he did. Uh, ultimately, how much more humble does it get than dying on a cross? Well, friends, I think it's time to go. The bells are calling me, and I've got to get to 11 o'clock. So should we close in a word of prayer? And then uh, I look forward to meeting you all. I know it was kind of bam, 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 bam. My email is jay at cathedraladvent.com. Let's, I'd love to take you out to coffee sometime if you're up for it. So uh, anybody, take me up on that. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for today. Lord, again, we, we return to you saying we don't have all the answers, but we trust that you do. I pray for each person here as they wrestle with all the various questions that come up, not just in this class, but in our lives, uh, that you would point us to Christ, that you would point us to the answer in him, that in him we have our life and our hope and our salvation. And all these things we turn over to you in Christ's name. Amen. amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.